Welcome to the official podcast of The Next CMO, hosted by Plana. So The Next CMO is a thought leadership podcast for those who are CMOs or want to become one. Uh, my name is Peter Mahoney, the CEO and founder of Plana. And for this week, we have a special quarantine edition of The Next CMO podcast. Uh, what do I mean by quarantine edition? I mean that I wanted to do an in-person podcast so the audience of people I could do a podcast with in person was fairly limited so I had to look to my basement uh, and in my basement I found a uh, very successful BDR by the name of Patrick Mahoney so Patrick welcome to the show thanks Peter uh, pleasure to be here in the house uh, where we've been for the past couple months and yeah happy to join on the pod on the pod yes we're doing the pod with Pat which is kind of cool so uh, I, I thought it would be fun to talk to Pat because he is a BDR and I'm going to have him tell you a little bit about his story how he got there but he brings a great perspective for marketing people because they often work very closely with the BDR teams and hope that they are successful and generate lots of opportunities out of the leads they create for them so Pat tell us a little bit how, how long have you been a BDR uh, yeah, so going on a uh, year and three months at Repsley, um, uh, and yeah, started there back in June, so I guess just about a year, but um, yeah, can we start over? I feel like I <laughs> no, I, I like up. this part. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I messed up already. I, no, you did awesome. Uh, so what, what a year ago, what were you doing? You graduated from college, right? Where did you go to school? Yeah, yeah, so I graduated from Loyola, Maryland, down in Baltimore, um, and uh, yeah, started in June after taking a couple months um, and have been there ever since and enjoying it. Great. Excellent. Yeah. So, so just tell us really quickly what, what Repsley is all about. I know, obviously, but both of our listeners probably are interested in hearing about it. Yeah, exactly. All three of them. Um, Repsley is a retail execution software. Uh, we're designed for field sales teams. Uh, field sales or merchandising teams. It's basically a CRM for salespeople that go out into the trade uh, and work in food and beverage uh, accounts. Uh, so selling into retail stores, uh, we help them track and execute on promotion events and obviously uh, drive sales. So yeah, working with companies like Kraft Heinz, uh, Vita Coco, and more uh, selling into grocery stores. So some of the brands that you see, we work with those guys. That, that's cool. And obviously, given the uh, pandemic that we're going through right now, they're probably going through some changes. Are, are customers, uh, are, are, are they still using their software? Do you, do you focus on sort of one segment versus another at this time? So how, how's that working for you at Repsley? Yeah, so um, pretty much anybody that has a field team are people that we want to work with. Um, and that actually encompasses a lot of different CPG industries. So there's obviously food and beverage, uh, which has been busy throughout um, COVID. And there's other industries that have been more affected. So for example, cosmetics industry, obviously nobody's uh, going out and getting their nails done. So um, a lot of those companies and industries have suffered and uh, it it's been a big focus for us recently, just trying to go after some of the people that are still doing business and still active in the field and in the trade. But, um, you know, it's, uh, the software is a pretty essential function for a lot of these teams to keep all their customer data. So uh, it's not something that's going away. It's just something that, um, you know, is, is changing how people look at it and 
certainly will be interesting to see the outcome in, in the uh, future of retail in the next couple of uh, years here. Yeah, and it's interesting that you obviously have done some fairly quick adjustment to the target. There are, and I think in most industries, there are sort of sub-segments of your customer base that might be more appropriate during different times. And, and obviously you sell into retail and you think, well, retail, that must be all hurting, but obviously pieces of it are doing pretty well uh, and actually probably going through some fairly significant change. Obviously, if you're in grocery right now, it's different. So you have to deal with it. And actually, I was wondering that because I, I don't know the answer to this, uh, but if you're a merchandiser going to grocery stores, can you still do that during the pandemic right now? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, some merchandisers have been forced to stop going to stores and it's on a store by store basis uh, for some people. Um, and also some companies uh, have policies where they don't want these people going into the stores. But uh, there are a lot of people that throughout COVID were still working, stocking shelves. Um, you'll notice, obviously, it's a it's a big importance to have stuff on the shelf, right? You can't buy something that's not there. So um, a lot of the teams have still been out there and hitting the stores as safely as they possibly can in a time like COVID. Yeah, it's interesting because I think we're, we're all getting a pretty good education right now about what a supply chain is all about yeah. because we're going to the store and seeing empty areas in, in the shelf all of a sudden. So if there's a run on toilet paper and all of a sudden you can't buy that or there's a run on flour because everyone wants to break bake bread all of a sudden. And I, I think it really highlights the the complexity of the supply chain and the fact that companies like Repsley are probably doing a really important service to sort of feedback in real time what's going on. Uh, and when the patterns shift so dramatically, when there's a big behavior change that you get during something like a pandemic, you pretty quickly go through those changes. So I suspect the the Repsley merchandisers are doing a better job if they have access getting stuff on the shelves. Exactly. Uh, and if you, if you don't have uh, great retail execution software, you might be struggling a little bit more. Well said. Couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> Excellent. So t tell me a little bit about your customers. So uh, again, remember our audience, it's a bunch of marketing people. Uh, they, they love to talk about target audience. So so tell me about the, the the kind of people who you're trying to reach to sell into to sell this kind of solution for Repsley. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I think one of the big things that we focus on um, and a big focus on for this year has been our ideal customer profile um, and figuring out exactly what kind of company it is that buys Repsley or, uh, and, and within that company, what kind of person buys Repsley. So, uh, as far as that goes, um, you know, we've found a real sweet spot in companies that are, um, you know, pretty sizable as far as revenue goes and have a pretty strong sales organization. Um, and those companies tend to have a pretty built out uh, field presence. Um, and then, like I mentioned, it, in the food and beverage industry, obviously, there's a lot of different things that go into that. But brands specifically need to be uh, really focused on retail execution because, you know, as, as a brand, the only way you're going to win, uh, win customers is by uh, getting, getting their attention and seeing, uh, you know, or being in the right place on the shelf or at the right price. Um, so for those brands, uh, th those are companies that are really interested in working with us um, versus, you know, a food production company that maybe does food service like a Cisco or, U.S. foods or something like that. Um, so yeah, brands that sell into grocery are 
kind of our sweet spot um, with a sizable sales um, organization. And then um, as, as it is a sales <coughs> product, we, we like to sell the sales leadership. So um, director of field sales is a great title, uh, vice president of sales, all these sales leaders that kind of own uh, the, the team out in the field and are responsible for their number. Um, those are the people that get the most use out of Repsley and are actually hands-on with the tool. Um, and, you know, there's also some secondary people that have insights or, uh, you know, some, some stock in it, some marketing people that might want to see how different programs are being executed. But, uh, the, you know, the big focus is sales leadership, um, working with those teams actually in the stores that we like to sell to within brands. Well, that, that must be kind of interesting. So is it, is it a good thing that you're selling to sales leaders or a bad thing, right? So they, the, the good thing is that they should be probably sensitive to the fact that they're, maybe they're not going to be mean to the BDR who's trying to call them and do a sales call. But the bad thing is they probably know every single trick in the book, right? So what, what do you think about that? Is it good or bad? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think it's a good thing. Uh, as far as selling to salespeople goes, obviously... Um, I think they're a little bit more receptive to at least hearing out a pitch um, so you can get a little bit further than, um, you know, for example, one of our consultants uh, started PTC, which is a CAD software um, selling to engineers. And obviously a salesperson talking to an engineer uh, is kind of like, I don't know, some ridiculous metaphor, but not, not two things that mix very well. Um, and so, you know, I think salespeople are at least perceptive to hearing a pitch, which is half the battle, in my opinion. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. And it's it's interesting because, you know, at Plana, we, we sell to marketing people and it's kind of the same thing. We market to marketing people. And so that means that they can be a little bit critical sometimes of what we do because they know what they're talking about. And at the same time, I think they have an appreciation for it. So it's it's probably a balance. And, and on balance, like with us, it's probably a good thing that you're selling to salespeople because at a minimum, you've got an icebreaker, you've got something to talk about. So speaking of that, you know, how, how before this whole uh, COVID thing happened, what were you doing for outreach? Did you do the phone? Did you do email? And so what, what were your key methods to get to contacts? Yeah, so as a BDR at Repsley, um, you know, kind of our focus was both using phones and emails and also social selling through LinkedIn uh, to get in touch with our contacts. And a big part of it that people don't really see, but, you know, is a hugely important part is the research that goes into uh, a contact in a company before you reach out. So I'd say that's kind of like the um, the bulk of the iceberg that you don't see underwater, but you have to do a lot of research first to make sure that you're talking to the right person, you understand what they sell, what's important to them, so that you can actually have a good conversation with them. Um, bless you. But yeah, um, and I'm sorry, I kind of just forgot the rest of that question. But No, 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 that, that was exactly it. I think the, the point that you made about, I, I asked about what methods do you use to reach them, and, mm -hmm. and I think that the point you made is a super important one that this audience should really understand that research is is really critical no matter what you're doing what no matter what vehicle you use yeah. because especially when you're dealing with a fairly specific target market so you work mm -hmm. with big accounts and in trying to to get to a fairly finite set of uh, cpg manufacturers or retailers and and as a result you every at bat has to count yeah, absolutely. And I think the important thing is that 
Um, especially in today's day and age where automation is a huge thing and people can really pump out a ton of emails and marketing sequences to people. Um, personalization is really everything. So if you know um, something about what that person cares about, whether it's as far as you know their personal life or professional life, uh, whatever it is, and you can speak to that on a phone call or in an email, um, you're gonna you're gonna get a much more captive audience. And again, you know, like I said, at least being able to get the pitch out to somebody that's listening is half the battle, right? So to get somebody's attention is really important, and a big part of that is the research that goes into personalizing that outreach. Yeah, it's funny. I, I hear down uh, three floors below me in the basement sometimes uh, you you make the pitch and. I see sometimes you try to incorporate something that is a connection that you might have with their brand. So whether it's a, a, a an energy drink that you you have used before, or you, you you try to tie it in, and and I suspect that the contacts that you're dealing with, you can kind of if if you're dealing with someone who is in sales for energy drinks versus sales for pencils, they probably have a very different personality, and you can kind of tune your message to that as well as specific. So it's, it's kind of the, you're doing some kind of a, a, a high level uh, assessment of the kind of messages you make some assumptions about mm. what they might be interested in. And at the same time, you probably do some explicit stuff too, with, with your research to figure out, Hey, did this person work for another company before that sure. I can bring in that might be a, a rep or they, uh, you know, mention something specifically about the company. So you hear you do that a lot and that, that probably makes a pretty, pretty big difference. Yeah, I think it definitely does. Uh, and at least, you know, people appreciate the personalization at the, at the very least. Yeah, and I, I think the personalization is really tricky because you have to do it the right way. You have to make sure that you're you're doing it with a level of sincerity. You have to make sure that you're you're doing it accurately uh, because, like you said, there there are lots of platforms out there that will blast hundreds of thousands of messages to people and try to do sort of real time uh, or database based personalization, and you can really tell in a lot of cases if something's not like that and uh, if, if something is just a little bit weird and you can really tell the difference between a handcrafted message in email and in something that is just a, a Mad Libs kind of approach where they're filling in the blanks. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, I guess that the, uh, the uh, success of something that's you spend a lot more time in is going to, is going to be much higher because you're going to, you're going to have a much higher chance of actually connecting with someone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's um, you know an interesting problem that not not only BDRs at Repsley, but BDRs everywhere kind of face, right? Which is how much time do I spend crafting an email for one person, right? Because at the end of the day, um, you know, even if it's the most perfect personalized crafted email of all time, you might still get blocked by some internal server and, you know, 15 minutes of your day is just gone like that. So I think one of the biggest things that, um, you know, BDRs and myself especially can focus on is um, getting the right level of personalization, but also coupled with the quantity uh, of outreach that is going to be necessary to get the right people. So um, you're not going to get everybody. I think that's a given. But reaching out to the right number of people with the right level of quality of outreach um, can kind of yield the, the results that are going to allow you to be successful in really any BDR position, I think. Yeah, that's that's really smart, Pat, that the balance there is critical. 
like you said, if there's a, if you have a million prospects, then you probably need to use some scale kind of thing that tries to personalize the best with data as best as possible. But if you have a smaller number of people and it's about making sort of the balanced kind of investment of your time to get the the results at the end of the day. So that's, that's cool. So have you, have you, have you changed anything about your message post COVID as you've reached out to customers? I think one of the things is, um, you know, obviously now we're kind of moving through it a little bit and we're getting more towards a, nor- a new normal where people have, um, it's not a conversation that I feel like I have to have on the phone. Obviously the first couple of weeks selling into people that are selling into retail was super tough. People pretty much were just frozen and didn't really want to talk at all. Um, and so you just have to be empathetic and, uh, if somebody says, Hey, not right now, you just got to kind of listen to them. Um, you can't really push through that. And especially in an unprecedented time, like, like COVID, but I think the biggest change in how my, my outreach has uh, been structured pre and post COVID is just the kind of people I'm reaching out to. So, um, you know, like I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, uh, some industries have definitely suffered more than others have throughout COVID. And uh, especially with our customer base, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that um, no salons or uh, cosmetic stores are really even open right now because they're not essential. Um, so those people, have, it just doesn't make sense to reach out to them. They're not doing anything in the field. But, um, you know, people selling into grocery or even Lowe's and Home Depot or pet stores are all considered essential business and all still open. So those people, um, you know, became a higher priority kind of moving through COVID and coming out on the other side as well. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I imagine that there may be an opportunity also to reach out to people who uh, maybe are about to come back online. And, and I suspect that if you're rethinking your the way you do your merchandising, if you've restructured your sales team, especially, mm-hmm. that's probably a, a good time to consider uh, some sort of new approach and new technologies that you can use to improve your uh, your, your field operating capability. So yeah, absolutely. And, you know, certainly some people have used this downtime where they didn't necessarily um, have their teams out in the field to bring on a project that their teams could still focus on in the downtime to, um, you know, when they come back, hit the stores and hit the hit the pavement running, really. So yeah, that definitely. Yeah. And do you do you think it's probably hard for you to imagine because this is I mean, you're a year out of school and just starting your career it's probably hard to imagine because you haven't gone through some of these big economic disturbances before, but do you think it's going to go back to normal or do you feel like, you know, does your generation feel like, Oh wow, this is now the new way. This is crazy. Everything's broken and it's not going to change. Yeah. It's a, you know, obviously been a topic of a lot of people's conversations. I think, um, obviously we're going to go into a new sort of normal. Um, so I think you'll, you'll see a transition from, um, you know, the way people have done things in the past, uh, I think one of the most glaring ones that everyone's been talking about is uh, the work from home versus uh, work at the office debate. I think that's going to start to change and people are going to be more open to, you know, realizing there's other ways you can do things. And uh, I think that's just a given whenever there's some kind of hard time and you have to adapt is you find out, hey, there's actually another way we can do this and we can do it pretty well. So I think, um, you know, moving forward, uh, I think. It, it it certainly won't be as bad as it has been in the past couple months. I think we'll get back to you know a new a new state of normalcy, 
but I don't think it will be exactly the same as it was maybe December 2019. Yeah, I, I don't. I think it'll be a while till it gets back there. Yeah. But it's amazing how resilient people and companies and economies and countries are. So uh, who who <clears throat> who knows? Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, how long it'll take to to get back? But I I think it'll get back at some point. But it'll probably take a while. Agreed. The. Uh, uh, the other thing I was going to ask you about was, uh, about marketing. So, uh, now you have a pretty good perspective. You went to school and, and, uh, have, have your bachelor's in, uh, in communications with a focus on advertising. So you have some sense of what's going on, what marketing people are, are doing and you come in in this BDR role. So what is it that you look to for, to, to marketing people? What can they do to make the BDR more successful? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, obviously one of the biggest things is uh, working together and working as a team. Um, so anything that you can do as a marketing professional to give your your sales team or your BDR team the, you know, the structure that they need to uh, go out and speak with the company message um, and speak to the right people is going to be really important. Um, I think marketing has a really good sense of you know, how we should be communicating uh, our company message to different prospects within different verticals and different industries. So uh, that's been a big thing for us. We actually, um, you know, cool platform uh, plug, uh, plug, I guess, that we've been using is this is software called Guru. Um, and it allows, uh, that our marketing team puts some copy in there and some battle cards together. Um, and you can kind of quickly search a keyword like Salesforce, for example, which is one of our perceived competitors, not a real competitor. Uh, but you can you can see uh, you could search that in Guru, and up comes a battle card with all the different types of objections you might see from a Salesforce user, and how to overcome that, and what different landmines are based on you know product marketing research, and also just uh, how we talk to people within our ICP. So I think that's a big thing is just trying to figure out how to work together with the BDR teams because at the end of the day, they're the most uh, customer-facing uh, function of pretty much any business. So uh, you know, having the right vocabulary and the right means to talk to those people um, from the marketing department could be really helpful and it has been really helpful for us, I think. Yeah, I think getting a toolkit in place is really important. And it, it's interesting because your your approach and and probably w- with your team is is one where you try to introduce flexibility and personalization and customization. To do that and be on message and sound like you're brand appropriate, you need a really good set of tools from the marketing team to make sure that you have those things. And, and this guru thing sounds kind of cool, right? Because it's a, uh, obviously, once you get someone to, to have a conversation with you, you need to be, uh, you need to be uh, you know, battle ready. So you need to be able to respond when someone asks you a question, you need to have the information at your fingertips. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, the other piece of Guru that I think is pretty interesting and, um, you know, our, our other marketing tools like that is it's a way for us to share kind of how, um, you know, copy would actually go into a, uh, an email. So, you know, like I said before, trying to personalize to a certain level, but also speak with the company's messaging, right? So copy and pasting some key bullet points or a key value proposition um, within different buyer personas is, has been a really helpful thing for us, but then also personalizing maybe the, the first paragraph and the bottom paragraph for the, the call to action. Um, so stuff like that's been super helpful. And then 
of course, the old uh, sales versus marketing battle of all time is uh, give me more leads and what about the leads that you already have? Uh, so I think you know um, that's something that is obviously going to be uh, important for any sales and marketing team to be successful is, is getting synced on the leads and, and how they're being um, handed out and, and you know what's done with them once sales actually gets those leads. So, yeah. Yeah, and how much time are you spending on the phone versus on email these days? Um, you know, I'd say I spend probably three to four hours on the phone every day and probably um, four hours on email and then another two hours kind of doing research and other stuff around around that as far as that goes, yeah. So that's a fair amount of phone time, which is kind of interesting. And I, I think some verticals are a little bit different than others. Some people aren't as likely to pick up the phone, but you, you have a fairly talkative crowd, so it's probably pretty reasonable. Do, is, is it reasonable to expect that you can actually reach someone on the phone these days, or do you do a lot of leaving of voicemails? Uh, I think, you know, um, industry average for uh, what I've seen is about 10% connection rate, um, which is, you know, if you make 75 calls, seven to eight connections. Um, but, you know, hopefully you're making... Um, the calls into the, the really, really quality contacts. So each of those connections could be a potential gold mine. Um, and I think at the end of the day, uh, one thing that I've always uh, appre appreciated about the phone over the email is that you can always overcome an objection on the phone, but over email, if somebody shoots you back three or four objections, it could be really hard to kind of combat that and, you know, have a conversation with somebody versus uh, on the phone, it's, you know, it's easy to at least have a conversation. So I think that's one of the biggest reasons that, um, you know, I spend a lot of time on the phone and especially because I already have a, a pretty finite list of companies I'm going after. So um, talking to these people and educating them about what it is that we do is sometimes sometimes a lot easier uh, over the phone than it is over email. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And interestingly, so I, I put out this LinkedIn poll back a couple of weeks ago where I, I asked, sort of, at what point do you stop and listen to the customer. And I, I think there were four points that I made. There are four choices. One was after you introduce yourself, hi, my, my name's Patrick from Repsley. Uh, or uh, the second one might be, hi, this is Patrick from Repsley. We make retail execution software, telling a little bit about the value proposition. Uh, a third is actually going into the value proposition before you wait to hear the customer back. Or or the last one is just keep on talking until they interrupt you, right? So your response was kind of interesting. You were one of the few people who said, the, I think you said the first one, right? You you just introduce yourself and and you say something like, are you having a good day or something, right? So what's, what's, your, what's your opener when you get someone on the phone? Yeah, well, I think, you know, certainly um, the worst thing you can do is just keep talking, right? I, one of the things that people always say is the best salespeople are really great listeners. So, you know, uh, Gong IO actually had an interesting statistic that the best closers have a, I think it was less than 60% talk to listen ratio. So they're, they're talking, uh, you know, not that much compared to how much they're spending listening to their customers' pain and problems. So to that point, um, as an opener, I usually go with, hey, it's Patrick Mahoney from Repsley. Um, how are you doing this afternoon, Peter? And then, you know, usually uh, it's a bit of an icebreaker. People usually respond to a question like that. And then sometimes they'll say, wait, who are you? Um, and so kind of the beginning of my pitch is what's called an upfront contract, which is 
uh, you know, hey, uh, it's Patrick Mahoney from Repsley. You know, you might not have heard of us before. I was looking to take about 30 seconds of your time to let you know what we do and why I called you over at Plana. And feel free to tell me if I'm talking to the right person or if a conversation is worth your time after that. Are you, is that, you know, okay with you? Kind of giving them the opportunity to say, hey, no, this is not worth my time. Um, and agreeing to buy 30 seconds of their time to kind of go into the pitch from there. By the way, I wish everyone did that. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you do that. And as, as you know, I get a lot of inbound phone calls and emails and things like that. And almost nobody does that as this, this uh, initial contract, which is hugely valuable because if someone asked me now, of course, everyone's going to call me and start asking me this. But if, if someone asked me, uh, can I have 30 seconds to explain this? And then you can decide if it's worth, worth your time. I, I'd say, yeah, of course you can. Yeah. Right. It's going to take me longer to get you to shut up and hang the, hang up the phone. And I'd never do that. I don't don't want to be rude to people, but, uh, but that, I think that's a great way in. And so most people I assume are pretty positively responsive to that. Right. Yeah. I'd say that, you know, 90% of the time, um, that works. And obviously, you know, with cold calling, you're going to get some people who just don't want to speak to you at all. Or as soon as they hear Patrick Mahoney from Repsley, it's click. Um, so, you know, that's just expected, but I think this way it kind of allows you to um, get the customer or the prospect to agree to give you some some of their time, and at that point you already have kind of a captive audience, and you're being respectful of their time. If they say, "Hey, actually, you know what? That's not worth my time," um, they don't even have to give you a reason. They could just say it's not worth my time and hang up the phone. That's you got what you asked for, so you know that's all you can really ask for. But I think most of the time it does lead to uh, at least a two minute conversation. And, uh, you know, from there, you know, another discovery or uh, introductory call uh, that can kind of dive deeper when they have more time. Yeah. And you guys are motivated. Your, your goal is based on booking demos, right? And uh, so that's, that's your, that's your key objective is to get people to sign up to see a demo. Is that right? Yeah, it's, um, and, you know, it's kind of changing as we figure out what makes the most sense. And, you know, what our outreach strategy is really going to be moving forward. But part of it's uh, booking demos and part of it's based on, uh, you know, closed one revenue. So, um, you know, a big a big focus is don't just put anything on your account executive's calendar and call it a demo, right? It has to be somewhat qualified. Um, they have to have a certain need, a certain, you know, understanding of uh, timeline and, uh, you know, budget is less important if there's a need. But if you can at least present the account executive with those things, then, uh, you know, in most situations that would be considered a demo. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I I like the fact that you guys have a quality metric and approach for, for your objectives, because not everyone does that. What a lot of people do is say, Hey, give me uh, marketing. People have this too. They say, give me leads. I don't care what they are, but give me leads. And they're measured on that. Mm. Uh, and I think more and more people are using some kind of a quality metric, like, an SQL is is typically the language that people use. A sales qualified lead that means that it's typically Bant qualified. You know, it's got budget, authority, need, yeah. and time frame. And uh, I don't have to tell you that stuff. Uh, and at the same time, it's uh, it's accepted by sales as actually being something that is in the right target and qualified. So that's a it's a good quality measure. And uh, and it sounds like you guys have that that approach, which probably is one of the reasons why you approach 
things the way you do, right? It's not this volume game. You do some research up front and you're really trying to get the right people and, mm -hmm. and really find the right mix of people who can really benefit from Repsley at the end of the day. That's, that's what you're up for, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, it doesn't make sense to try and pitch somebody that doesn't have any pain or doesn't have any business needs. So at the end of the day, we want to conserve our time and our resources and, uh, you know, work with people that actually have a legitimate business need for what we offer. And, uh, you know, it allows us to um, be a lot more selective with who we spend time with, what, what clients we spend time with. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think is the best way to kind of have really, really clean, strong pipeline. Yeah, that's right. And, and now you've you've recently uh, expanded your role. Congratulations as a team lead. Is that what they call you? Yeah, right? team lead. Yeah. So that's pretty awesome. And uh, and so you, you help uh, mentor and coach the other uh, the other BDRs. Is that that's part of the deal? So what what would you say for if if you were going to give a, some a BDR out there in the world a couple of tips about uh, how they should approach their customers, especially during uh, Corona time, uh, COVID time, uh, what would you tell them? Yeah, certainly. I think, um, you know, one of the most important things is just understanding where your buyers are at and what they're going through right now. Um, so whatever you can do to understand the problems that they're facing due to whatever um, factors are out there in the world and, and be just as empathetic as possible. So um, at the end of the day, you know, you don't have to necessarily get somebody to buy your software, your service this second or tomorrow. But if you can have a conversation with somebody and understand, you know, where they're at, um, they're going to be a lot more likely to pick up the phone uh, in the future and, and actually have a conversation with you when their time is, uh, when the time is right for them. So, you know, it's, it's obviously really hard to be in sales for anybody uh, during Corona because, you know, nobody really wants to buy anything right now because it's, it's hard to say what's going to happen in the next even two weeks. Uh, but, I think the, the big thing is if you're empathetic and you can listen to people and uh, be organized at how you're following up with these people, then um, you know you're gonna you're gonna end up uh, leaving a, a favorable impression on people and and get their business when their time is right. Yeah, that's that's great advice. And then maybe one last question, Pat, is that you you. Uh, you took this role, you weren't sure if this was going to be the right direction. It seemed like kind of an interesting one, but I think you learned a ton in, in the last year or so since graduating from school. So w give me a sense of, uh, one, do you think it was a good approach for you to be a BDR? Uh, and, and, and two, maybe, are, are there any key things that you've learned in, in this last year working as a BDR that maybe were un unexpected for you? Yeah, so um, I'd say... To answer the first part of your question, I think it's definitely been a role that I've enjoyed um, you know, over the past year. It's it's really unique um, to kind of have this one-on-one -on -one interaction with uh, the people that are actually buying your software. So that's something that's really interesting, to, or, or your services, or whatever you're selling. But uh, it's really interesting to me to see what makes people actually pay money for a software or a solution. Um, and I think it's invaluable uh, experience for anybody, you know, and if I ended up wanting to do something else later on in my career, I definitely would call on my time as a BDR to say, um, you know, what do these people actually, you know, what, what, what causes these people to actually buy? Um, so that experience has been something that I guess I wasn't expecting and uh, was, was really great to learn. And 
as far as things that I wasn't expecting that I might get better at, um, you know, that's, that's kind of a, that's a good question, but um, let me think about that. You know, I'd say it's, it's, uh, they, they always tell you getting, this, it, get, getting into sales that you're going to face a lot of rejection and that people are going to kind of shut you down a lot. And I think um, I definitely had a thick skin going into it, but, um, you know, it certainly has made me appreciate the conversations that I have with people who are actually uh, interested and have a need. Uh, so I think that level of, uh, I guess, endurance and um, positivity through even negative reactions from customers has been something that um, I was expecting it to some level, but, you know, uh, getting getting to really grow and become more resilient and kind of push that away and, and not really process it personally has been something that uh, has been kind of a big change that maybe I wasn't expecting as much. Well, that's great. And the one other thing that I notice a lot is that you're, you seem to be genuinely excited about what you're doing and you're excited about Repsley and the company and the software. And that really comes through and that makes a huge difference because people can really read that excitement through the phone or even through an email, whatever kind of vehicle you're using. It's, it's uh, really clear when you're genuinely interested in the products you're talking about and genuinely interested in what the customer is doing. And it's, it's, it's fun to see you get excited about what some of your customers are doing and learning about their problems and how they can sell more effectively and how you can help them do uh, do a better job and make more money and be happier. So all, all good stuff. Well, Pat, that was, this was awesome. The quarantine edition of uh, the, the next CMO. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, I loved learning about uh, your experience as, uh, as a BDR and, and hopefully you all got a couple of gems along the way. Uh, and uh, if you, uh, if you uh, haven't yet, uh, I encourage you to, uh, to follow the next CMO and uh, in Plana on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, And if you have ideas for topics or guests, or if you want to be on the show uh, and you don't have to be related to me to be on the show, but if you are, that might help uh, send, uh, send any of your input or your suggestions to the next CMO at plana.com. So have a great day, everyone, and uh, enjoy the rest of the week.